You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seats in front of you. Find Revelation 5 on page 1030. And listen, if you don't own a Bible, the greatest gift that we could ever give you is not a, a blank check. The greatest gift that we could give you is not a Lombardi trophy. The greatest gift that we can give you is what I just read this morning is the gift that God gave to his people Israel in the wilderness. In fact, the Moses, Jesus, or God through Moses says that, that, that when it comes to the manna that he had provided for years, that it was intended to be a shadow, it was intended to be a pattern to point God's people to the fact that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that book that we've just directed you to grab in the seats in front of you is the greatest treasure that you can have in this life. And more importantly, the studying, understanding, and applying what you read in it to bring glory to Christ. So please take that with you if you don't own a copy of God's word. Revelation 5 is a continuation of the scene that we had last week, which is peering behind the curtain to see how heaven views the realities that we face. And last week was more of a a general understanding that there is is one who sits on the throne and he has authority. And remember the imagery, which by the way, it's important that you come every Sunday. It's important that if you're not here that you you listen to the sermons, not because I'm some amazing speaker, but because every passage builds on the previous passage. And so I do my best to be able to, to review what we studied last week, but to be able to get all the details, to be able to build upon that, it's important. Be studying, be be listening, be be engaging week in and week out. But last week we saw the throne and the imagery that John shared was reminding us that God is sovereign, that he is almighty, that he has authority over all of redemptive history and everyone and everything that is contained in it. And then there were 24 elders. And we, I, I propose to you that they, these are angelic beings that are representing believers of all time. And they had white robes and, and crowns and that was intended to symbolize to, to the readers of Revelation and to us that God is faithful to bring his people through all the trials that we experience, through all of our foolishness, through all of our sin and God will be faithful to bring us to the end, to bring us to completion. And then there were four living creatures that were intended to represent all of creation from animals to, to, to the fish in the sea to humans and everything that has been created, God has authority over and will bring them to their intended purpose where one day everyone will bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords and worship him. That was last week. So now this week, we're going to add some details and and add an individual that becomes the focus of this chapter, but also of all of Scripture. But it really focuses on, would you write this down, victory. What would you have done last week as we all gathered together for our parties and and we anticipated with all of our jerseys that we were wearing, what, what would you have done if the commentators came on and just before kickoff, for those of you who didn't pay attention, that was the Super Bowl, and the commentator kind of touched his ear and he's like, hold on, I'm, I'm getting, yeah, my producer just let me know we have discovered something amazing. We've actually discovered a, a book that contains every detail of the game that's about to be played. 
And in fact, what we know to be true is that the Chiefs are going to win. There would have been this collective roar from Kansas City, wouldn't there have been? It's guaranteed because the rest of us lost years of our lives and our hearts were really struggling to keep up as that game went back and forth. But, but that would have been amazing, wouldn't it have? And immediately, we would have been asking questions like, okay, wait, who is this producer? What authority does he have? And all of those would have been valid questions. But, but, but what, what that illustration provides is ultimately what this Bible is. And that is a, a book that reveals the victory has been won by our Creator. The book contains some details and and is intended to encourage us. And isn't that how this book works? Is that from the beginning, from Genesis, and especially Genesis 3.15, and some of them are very clear, some of them we have to work to see, but the Bible just continues to give details of the story to let us know the victory's been won, but the game still has to play out, right? Right? But what's interesting to us is that we are limited in our understanding and we want to know all the details, don't we? Because there's so many times in our lives when what we see with our eyes and what we experience with our lives doesn't match what we think we know about God. And so we, in those moments, call out to God and we say, listen, I think, you, I think we know you've won the victory, but, but I want more details. And so how does God usually respond? Oh, 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 okay. Well, let me tell you everything that's going to happen. No, he doesn't. And he doesn't do that because of this. He gives us exactly what we need so we can live a life of informed faith. Friends, if you, if you can grab this quote, if they put it up on the screen, if it's there. If you can grab this quote, it will serve you to give you confidence and courage to be able to weather whatever life throws at you to be able to conquer and endure. This is gold that God gives us exactly what we need so that we can live an informed faith. Faith is never intended to be blind. Do you know that? We often talk about taking a leap of faith and it's just closing my eyes and hoping for the best. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is an informed faith. The details of God's character are just enough for us to be able to be informed to leap when we should and to trust in our God. That's this book. And it really sets up for us the scene of chapter 5. Here's the big idea. Behind the heavenly curtain reveals the one who conquered to ensure that we can conquer and endure. Let me read this amazing section and then we'll unpack it together. Revelation 5 verse 1. Then John writing, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that was in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I got to pray. Father, what a gift to be able to see this, to be able to read this, and to be able to just spend a few measly minutes of our lives to attempt to unpack this. It is enough at some level, to simply just read this. And yet, what glorious treasures are promised to us when we dig. So may we dig. May this not be a religious exercise. May this not be simply an exercise of what I'm supposed to do in my profession. May this be a partnership of all of us with your Holy Spirit humbly looking at the terms and the phrases and the words and searching and seeking to understand them so that when the learning happens, we can transition to living to the glory and praise of the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask this question. Number one, how important is victory to you? How important is victory to you? How important is victory to you, beloved? Listen, this is not religion. This is not activity. This is personal. How important is victory to you? We're introduced to a new variable in the scene that continues from chapter 4. It says in verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. It's the Greek term biblion, from which we get the word book, or it could be translated scroll. And and what we might be tempted to do, even in my explanation of that, is want to try to wrestle with, is it a book or is it a scroll? Remember this, beloved, that when it comes to prophecy in Scripture, details are important, but they're not the end game. What they teach us is 
Friends, if we can remember that truth, it will help us understand prophecy of Scripture. The details are important, but they are not the end game. The truth that they point us to is. And so it's important for us to wrestle with what is the book, and then it says that it's sealed with seven seals. What are the seals? It's important for us to wrestle with this. But the end game isn't for us to get stuck in the details. So, so let's wrestle with it and remind ourselves that the book with seals is not first introduced to us in Revelation 5. We've seen a book with seals in Daniel and Ezekiel. And, and even in saying that, let me remind you of this, and we'll have the quote put up on the screen. The Bible is a story that is intended to be understood as stories are. Remember this. This book is a story. And any other novel, any other book that contains a story is is handled in a similar fashion. In this way, there is a progression. There is plot. The end concurs with the beginning and vice versa. And this is why the authors tend to interact with and draw from the entire story. I wish that I would have known this in the first 35 years of my life. It would have helped me better understand this book. That this book isn't intended to just grab one verse and put it on a coffee cup. That verse is part of a story. It interacts with the story. It concurs with the rest of the story. And the authors are constantly going back and forth just like Jesus did. And so in order for us to answer the question, what is this book and the seals, we look at the whole story. Now there's five opinions that are the most popular opinions on what this book is. We'll put this up on the screen. Some people believe this is the book of the redeemed. Chapter three, verse five references a book of the redeemed, a book that contains the names of all of those who have been predestined before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons to God. But I don't think that's what it is because the contents of what we will read in chapter 6 extend beyond simply the elect. A a second conviction or position that people hold is that the book is the Old Testament. But when you look at the prophecies of the Old Testament, you see that the prophets are constantly looking beyond the scope of the era of Genesis to Malachi. And so I don't think it's the Old Testament. The third conviction is that this is a book with the events of the future great tribulation. Now that's, that's a worthy position. But when we start to unpack in chapter 6 the details of the events that are described, we can't help but say, wait a minute, I've seen these things take place for generations since the resurrection of Christ. So I I think that's valid and it's a strong argument, but I, I don't think that's what this book is. A fourth conviction is that it's a book containing God's plan for judgment and redemption from the time of Jesus' resurrection. Now again, as we, I've already studied it. I've already written the sermon for next week. And so as we look through all of the seals that are open and we look at all the details, it seems like this is the one of the four so far that seems to be what the book contains. And then the fifth one is that is a book of a testament of the inheritance to be received. And, and so where I land is I think it's a combination of four and five. 
Respect those who hold to the first three. But I think it's four and five. Now, what's important? Would you turn back to Daniel 12? Daniel 12. Hopefully by now, as we're five chapters in to the book of Revelation, you can understand that John reflects and interacts constantly with the Old Testament, especially Zechariah and Ezekiel and Daniel. It's interesting, in verses 1 through 3 of Daniel 12, you see some similar references to what not only we'll read in chapter 5, but chapter 6 and the rest of Revelation. But look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. Isn't that interesting? You shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. I think that's what John's referring to in Revelation 5. Is that the book that contains certain contents, and Daniel alludes to what those contents are, were shut up by Daniel generations before until the end. Now what the end is and all of the details will be a stay tuned kind of to be continued. But I think that's what's going on here is that that book that contained the prophecies and the details of future eras are told to be shut up to Daniel until the end. And, And I think that's the book that we're looking at in Revelation 5. And it says in verse 1 that it was in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Remember who that is from chapter 4. It's most likely the Father. And he's on this throne and he has all of this glory and the jewels that are surrounding him and this rainbow that is emerald and bright in color and there's lightnings and thunders flashing and he's calmed the chaos of evil and wickedness symbolically represented by this glassy sea. This is the one who holds in his right hand the hand of authority, the book or the scroll. And then it says in verse 2, there's an angel, but not just that. Listen, any of us who are in the presence of the angel would respond just like the other angels in, or humans in the Bible, who in the presence of angels just were like, Ugh. And yet this is a mighty angel. Look at the text. This isn't just an angel. This is a mighty chain angel saying with a loud voice, Who is capable and qualified to open and read and administrate this book? And no one is capable. It's interesting that John, verse 4, weeps loudly. You know, I have to be honest, when I read this, I wanted to say, um, John, it's a book. I mean, what's the big deal about a book not being able to be opened? Why would you? It says he wept loudly. He is racked with emotion. You know, for me personally, I, I know there's some of you that really could care less about sports, and I, I continue to pray for you. <laughs> And some of you, I know, you, you look forward to like victories in politics more than victories of our hometown football team and respect, but don't understand. You, you know, the, the, the fact is, is victory is important. So whatever your passion is, 
we can at least relate to that, can't we? That victory is important. I mean, for me personally, if, if my team doesn't win, it can be days before I'm able to, to function. I mean, I love sports. I, I love to play sports. I love to watch sports. I, in fact, there's so many times when I go by the, the Shields complex and I see those little kids out there playing softball and baseball, and I just am like, I just want to stop and watch. And I want them to get victory. I, I want them to, to win victory. It's, it's important to me so much so that Man, it affects me if we don't gain victory. And, and John is weeping bitterly over the book not being able to be opened. But listen, the book, when we understand what the rest of the Bible says about this book, is a book of victory. Listen to what would have happened had this book not been opened. We'll put this up on the screen. Jesus would not have been worshipped. He would have not have been recognized as worthy. He would not have been redeemer of the world. Martyrs would not be avenged. Prayers of the saints would not be answered. The kingdoms of the world, chapter 11, verse 15, which by the way I think is the epicenter of Revelation, would not become the kingdom of our God and of his Lord Jesus Christ. The wicked would not be judged. Jesus would not come back. He would not reign in glory. There would not be any new heavens or new earth. How important is victory to you? Does this keep you up at night? Is this more important than your victory in your workplace or your classroom? More important than victory of sports teams? More important than victory of your favorite political party? More important than your success or failure in life? How important is victory to you? For John, it was everything. And the thought that it would not be able to be opened and administrated caused him to weep bitterly. I'm constantly convicted as a a preacher, and this is just a moment of vulnerability. I didn't have this in my notes, but I was telling Sally this morning, the content is rich. I, I, I struggle with getting practical. I struggle with, after I've just unpacked this rich content, being able to say, okay, now what do we do with this? And my hope is, is that the Holy Spirit will do his work and will take this content and you'll start to say, okay, I can do this. I need to change here. But I think I need to grow in being practical. So as I look at this, I think the ways we can grow in having God's victory be important is growing in our understanding of who God is. I think the more God is in our lives and in our minds, the God of Scripture, not of our own design. The more we see him from Genesis to Revelation, the more we engage with him, the more the the glow of his true gold sparkles in our eyes and the glitter of the fool's gold of the world starts to grow dim. That's not even great, but hopefully it helps. Number two, how do you define victory? How do you define victory? By the way, one of the commentators said, you've got these powerful beings in the throne room. They only speak when it's appropriate. That's a great lesson for all of us. So what what does the elder say to John? John's weeping, and he's uncontrollable weeping. He's weeping loudly, and nobody can open it. And, And the elder comes, and he calms him down. And what does he say? Well, he doesn't say, it's not as bad as you think. He doesn't say take some medicine. 
He says this. He uses the language of the Bible to announce that Jesus has triumphed and has kept his promise. I love that. It's from Jim Hamilton. You know, so often when we see people suffering in life that are discouraged, we, we want to give them those platitudes and those empty thoughts. Oh, it's going to get better. You're single. God has something, someone special for you. Somebody just died. They're in a better place. We, we often run to these, these phrases that can tend to be empty unless they're biblical. So I think what Hamilton's quote tells us is that what the elder is reminding us is two things. One, when you're discouraged, use the language of the Bible. That's the only thing that delivers true help and hope. We just had a funeral last week, and I've done so many funerals. I've been to so many funerals, as so many of you, I'm sure, have. And it's just we're confronted with our mortality, and in that moment of being overwhelmed, we tend to just throw things out there that we think are encouraging, but so many of them are empty. When we're discouraged, and when somebody in your life is discouraged, use the language of the Bible. But then second of all, when you see somebody discouraged or you're discouraged, look to Jesus. Look to the Jesus of Scripture, not some like prayer of Jabez Jesus. Not some Jesus calling Jesus. The Jesus of Scripture. Not the Jesus somebody tells you, well, Jesus told me something. The Jesus of Scripture. And that's what the elder's doing. Look what he says. He says, to John, weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. See, he goes to Scripture. The root of David. He goes to Scripture. He says, he's conquered. I love that. Go back to Scripture. There was a candidate back in Genesis 1 who was tasked with being prophet, priest, and king to exercise dominion over the creation, to expand God's glory. Listen to this. To cover the dry lands like waters cover the sea. I love that imagery. That was Adam's task. Failed. And then Israel was given another opportunity to be a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6, to expand God's glory, to fill their land as the waters cover the sea, and they failed. And we see in the Old Testament this expectation from Genesis 49 on that there will be a lion from the tribe of Judah, from Isaiah 11.1 1 on that there will be a root of Jesse, and we're, we're pointed beyond Adam, beyond Israel, to this, this promised one who will be a prophet, priest, and king, and this anticipation is growing as we study scripture. And the elder said, listen, he's come, and he's conquered. Nike, Nikao. John 16, 33, victory. What it literally says in the Greek, verse five, is that he conquered to open. It was like that was the expected result. That was his objective in conquering is to open this book. Now I'm gonna stick with sports. Sally's not in here, so... She just tells me sometimes too many Vikings comments and Star Wars and so, but I'm sticking to sports. 
How many times have you had a team that you're rooting for and you see the other team or you see, hear about their, what they've done to other teams and you're just like, it's not going to work. <laughs> I mean, you, you, I went to a small Christian school and there would be times we would play bigger schools and you'd just see them roll off the bus and you'd be like, nope, <laughs> not today. The fact is, is most times in our world, victory works out that way, doesn't it? Victory goes to the strongest, the fastest, the most powerful. That's not how God defines victory, is it? And we see that on display. Look at the text. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among them, I saw a fierce lion. Is that what it says? I saw a big bear. Now it says, I saw a lamb. Which, by the way, I don't think this is literally a fuzzy white lamb. I think John is using imagery from the Old Testament to be able to put on display and teach who this is. But he says there's a lamb standing, and in that we don't think much about it, but it says as though it had been slaughtered, literally, in the original. Slaughtered lambs don't stand, do they? See, the imagery that John's putting on display is this lamb was sacrificed, the cross, and yet stands the resurrection to declare ultimate authority, seven horns, and he shares that victory, seven spirits. You see the progression here? This is fascinating. This brings all of scripture together. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53, slaughtered lamb. The resurrected one, 1 Corinthians 15, standing there. Is the one who won the victory and has the authority, seven horns, to then send out the Holy Spirit, seven spirits. It says to be sent out into all the earth. You can write down Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Remember that? All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the ends of the age, right here. Beloved, this is victory. So many times in our lives, when we call out to God, we want him to give us victory as the world defines it. You're sick, God give me victory equals healing. You're single, you want to be married, God give me victory equals marriage. You're barren, God give me a child, that's victory. Oh friends, let us pause and see what is modeled here. That the victory of God is not measured and defined horizontally. He is the lion, he is the descendant of the great king. He's in the middle of the divine throne room, but it's unexpected according to the world's definition. Look at verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Wow. This is significant. He reached out and took 
the scroll that no creature in heaven, no creature on earth, no creature under the earth could take. This lamb who was slaughtered reached out and took it. That's victory. Vern Poitras, one of the commentators that I have certainly loved reading his commentary on Revelation, calls this the divine paradox. That a lamb who is also the lion can reach out to the one seated on the throne and take this book. And the father releases it. Biblically, we define victory so often the opposite of the way the world does. And the, the, the curtain's been pulled back, and this is intended to help us, that as those seven suffering churches were experiencing all of their suffering, and they longed for victory from God and in their lives to be able to change their paradigm, and the same thing is true for us. That is, we long to have God produce victory in our lives and in the world around us. Let's, let's make sure we're defining victory the way he defines it. Which brings us to number three. How are you responding to victory? How are you responding to victory? I, I just want to reiterate, like there's a scene. The conquering one, the lamb, takes the scroll from the right hand of the one on the throne and he lets him. This is amazing. And what happens after that is this crescendo Again, put yourself in the shoes of the churches. There were many that were seemingly in islands with the culture around them, the Roman Empire around them. Enemies and challenges within the church and their own sin and in their own lives. But here in verse 8, the four living creatures. Verse 8, the 24 elders. Verse 11, the angels numbering myriads and thousands. Verse 12, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Not only that, there are saints there. Every tribe, language, and people and nation. Which, by the way, I don't think this is a formula. There have been entire ministries and organizations that have seen this to be a formula. That that means that in heaven, there will be at least one representative from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And I don't think that's the point when you look at this verse in all of Scripture. The point is, is that God's people are not limited to an ethnicity. The point is, is that there are no horizontal limits to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Write down Galatians 3.28. Write down Colossians 3.11. Write down Romans 10.12. That in Christ there are no limits. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And John is reminding those churches and us, there are no limits. Let that be a reminder when you consider family members or friends or coworkers or bosses or teachers or classmates or politicians or entertainers or people who are choosing sinful lifestyles that nobody is outside of the reach of the gospel. That's the encouragement of this, not, not some formula. What a reminder. And, and from that group, look at what he does. He, he doesn't have any limits of the gospel. The gospel is powerful. Verse 10, we will reign. What does that mean? We will be prophets, priests, and kings effectively fulfilling the instruction and the purpose for which we were created. 
How do we respond to that? Well, four ways. Number one, it affects the way we define victory. Victory is the crucified lamb in the empty tomb. That's the victory. Now, yes, there are, there are valid and worthy victories we can pursue in our lives. There's good secondary victories that we can have in our lives. But the ultimate victory is the crucified lamb in the empty tomb. Glory to God. And so everything in our lives goes through that filter. Every morning that we wake up, no matter what's happened the day before, no matter what's happened in our past, no matter what we anticipate for the future, runs through the grid of victory, victory, victory. The lamb has been slain and he is standing. Number two, we worship him. We worship him. He becomes our ultimate treasure. And when we see sin in our lives or anything that is distracting from his glory, we repent and we surrender. That's what worship is, beloved. Listen, worship is not singing words on a screen or sometimes when they're not on a screen. Worship is something that we have as our disposition where the treasure that we place upon God and the value that we place upon him moves us. It does something to us. You know, sometimes when I'm preaching, people might think, man, that guy's an emotional, passionate guy. I'm not. But there's something that happens when when we see this. This is not an act. This is not a, a professional expression. This is what happens when, when the word of God just pours over me. So we worship him. Number three, we live out the victory. The text says that we are, have been made a kingdom of priests. That means we pursue holiness, exercising the dominion of God over our souls, over our careers, over our identity, over our family, and we do so in a way that Christ did it. Shepherding, nourishing, nurturing. We pursue holiness. We are a royal priesthood. We uphold God's righteousness in our lives, but we're also prophets. We study to gain understanding, then we teach it, and we live it out. Ezra 7.10, I love that. Ezra the scribe set his heart to study and to do and to teach the word of God. Friends, that's all we have. Everything out is, else is opinion, it's emotion, it's it, surveys and studies and experts say, and guess what? It changes every day. But this book, like our two oldest girls are in New York City right now. And they were just sharing, wow, we were just reminded that the same Bible that they're studying there is the same truth that we study here in Olathe. It's the same truth. My brother that I text every morning in Romania, and he preached this morning in Genesis. It's the same truth. Same truth in Europe, in Africa, same truth in Asia, same truth in Russia, and in Ukraine, and in Australia. It's the same truth on the seas right now as people are sailing. It is the same truth everywhere. Man, why wouldn't we want to study it? Why wouldn't we want to be people who are priests and prophets and kings? Number four, how? Well, we can do it because the Lamb has won the victory, and that's the new song, isn't it? Verse nine, they sang a new song. The new song is all of those prophecies of the Old Testament 
have been fulfilled in Christ. In Christ, they find their yes and amen. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish and throw away the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. When when, when the lamb has won the victory, now we have the opportunity, the equipping, and he's sharing the victory with us to conquer and endure ourselves. Friends, the process has begun It's intended to reveal to us from heaven's perspective that all of the details of redemptive history, all of the blessings and the challenges that are contained in it, every king that has risen, every king that has fallen, every legislation that has been passed, every decision that affects you for good and for evil, every detail is contained in the book. And Christ doesn't just open it. He authoritatively administrates it, and we'll get to study that next week. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, I thank you for what you have revealed to us in Scripture. I thank you that that amazing throne room scene of chapter four that gives us a general overview of your authority and your administration of redemptive history and and all of those details then focus in, as it were, with a spotlight on this book with seals, with the details that will unfold from the resurrection to the new Jerusalem. And that somebody had to open it, not just to be able to read the contents, but to authoritatively administrate them. No one was worthy. Even as we sit in that for a moment, may it move us. When we consider the ramifications of that book not being open and administrated, may, may that move us. May the victory of the gospel and of the Lamb be what is most important to us. But then what a reminder that victory is not always won from a vertical perspective by what is strongest and biggest and fastest. It doesn't always make horizontal sense. But it is true victory. The crucified Lamb and the risen Savior. Father, we are intended to respond to that victory. It is intended to impact the way we think, the way we speak, the way that we we live, the way that we view our pursuits in life, the way that we see ourselves and our own identity. May you, through your Holy Spirit, take the truths that we have learned and to be able to apply this in our lives to be able to do the living so that when we live what is reflected is not ourselves not our church but instead the glories and the majesties and the wonder and the awe and the value of Jesus Christ to him forever and through our lives be praised amen